The sermon text this morning is from Psalm chapter 62. For God alone my soul waits in silence. For him, from him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O oh people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that you, O Lord, belong, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. How, how well do you wait, you know, like for a birthday or uh, Christmas? Are, are you one of those very excited, consumed by what's coming? Well, how well do you wait when you're suffering or when you're experiencing hardship? Is it more anxiety? Is it more anger? Is it frustration? Is it fear? You know, how we wait for these things, it, it really exposes a lot about ourselves and what we believe. You know, in the psalm that Kimmy just read, this is a psalm where David is in great travail, and yet he waits in silence. In other words, it, it's not void of words, it's void of fear. He doesn't fear, he has this confident hope. Uh, theologians call this psalm, a psalm of confidence. It has a piece of lament in it, as you read in verses 3 and 4. There is the expression and complaining to God of the suffering that he experiences. But you feel this steadfast confidence. You'll notice that the psalm doesn't have one petition in it. There's no petition. There's no asking for deliverance. There's this giving oneself wholly to God and trusting oneself to him alone. He's really showing us how to handle the tragedy and the chaos of our days. He's really giving us kind of in his own personal testimony, he's giving us at the same time this pastoral instruction on how to respond to life. So I want to look at this psalm kind of in three stanzas, three movements. The first one is that he's going to lament. There is a place to bring our sorrow, our suffering to God. We've been looking at these kinds of psalms over the past number of weeks. Uh, and then he speaks to how he waits on God, how he actively trusts. He exercises faith. I will believe this. And he actively trusts in God. And then he turns and instructs us on how to do it. So we'll just make each movement. First though, he laments. But I want you to make, I want to make sure you know that 
even in his lament, he begins with this declaration of trust. David loves God. David trusts God, even though David's in a in a bad spot right now. Look with me at one to four. He says, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. So David here is a man of faith, but he's in a bad spot. He gives testimony to his being kind of on his heels. You know, so many of us tend to want to be secretive, and we want to keep up a facade of having it all together. He's very transparent. He's very open with how difficult his life is. He's like a leaning fence, a tottering wall. I I mean, he's about, just will go right over with the slightest push. He's not embarrassed to say that. And he talks not just on how weak he is, uh, but how they're attacking him in weakness, which is really remarkable. You know, wickedness thrives on weakness. This is why you see people kick a man when he's already down. I was always talking, you don't kick a guy when he's down. When he's weak, you, you wait. But, but wickedness wants to kick a man because weakness kind of fuels wickedness. And that's what these people are doing. They're attacking him. They're battering him. He's already weakened. He's already tottering. He's already kind of going on edge. And yet they go after him. Not just physically, but also personally. I mean, these are friends that were blessing inwardly, or blessing outwardly, but but cursing inwardly. These betrayers speaking falsehood lies. These double-tongued people who are speaking against him. Now, we don't know the situation here exactly. It could have been when Absalom betrayed his own father. Absalom was the son of David. He betrayed his father, stole the heart of the people, and then with David's other so-called friends, kind of colluded and ran him out of Jerusalem. You find the story in 2 Samuel 15. It could have been that. The, The issue is David's lament, his fear, it's not imagined. It's not fabricated. I mean, he was being hunted. If they would have caught him, they would have killed him. It's a real existential threat. And by the way, you think we have political intrigue? This is political intrigue right here. And what does David do? He just laments. He talks to God about it. Now, you and I will face other fears and threats and trials. They'll be different than David's, but no less real. What is the greatest pressure you have on you right now? Is it physical? Are you still threatened by COVID or Is it a doctor's report that you received? Is it fear over some new ache or ailment that you have? Or you see your child or your parents suffering? What is most pressing on you right now that that causes you the most amount of fear? Or maybe it's not physical. Maybe it's more relational. Maybe you have been betrayed. Maybe you've been excluded from a friend group. Or maybe you have an intense loneliness over being single. Or an intense loneliness while still married. Maybe you've lost a family member. Or, or maybe, maybe it's cultural. Maybe the press on you is you feel like the culture is declining at a supersonic rate. And you just wonder how quick will we hit the bottom. You're concerned over government. You're concerned over the polarization of our nation. Whatever fear, how are you waiting? Are you fretting? Are you worrying? So yesterday was my birthday. And um, I turned 60. 
And, um, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, uh, when I was a kid, I, I thought 60 was, like, old. And, um, and uh, I, I thought, well, th times have changed. I mean, when I was a kid, we had a rotary phone on a wall. And it didn't even have a stretch cord to it. And now we've got smartphones. So I bet you attitudes have changed with age as well. So I did my own survey. It wasn't scientific. I asked two people. Uh, one was younger than 20. One was older. And I said, well, uh, to you, do you think 60 is old? I and mean, without taking a breath, they said, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I'm thinking, well, thanks for nothing. But, you know, when, so coming to 60, you kind of think it's a milestone that, of course, everybody else that's 60 and older loves to welcome you to the club. Um, but, you know, going from 30s to 40s, that decade had some bumps in it, no doubt. But it was smooth. 40s to 50s, wasn't worried about 40, wasn't worried about 50. 60s is a little different. Uh, different in the sense that you come to terms with the next 10 years probably won't be like the last two or three. There, there's increasing issues of sickness and age and other things that you'll just naturally face. I mean, I reckon that Carol and I were talking about this. We just recognize that's part of the road that we're on. doesn't cause us to fear or get anxious, but it is a recognition of the reality that as life keeps moving, that these will probably be different decades, you know. Sickness will be saying goodbye probably to one or two more that we love, whether in family or in here. It's something we have to come to terms with. When tragedy and trial come to your life, how are you going to respond? We have to be thinking this way because we live in a world, you know, Carl Truman's a, modern-day theologian, and he says, it should be the Christian's natural state to feel that times are out of joint, that we don't really truly belong here. We've got to recognize this. So what will you do? I want you to prepare. That's part of our role. The pulpit has a role to prepare people to see God. What will you do? Some, when tragedy and, and trials strike, there's a slight temptation to disbelieve in God. I don't think this will happen to many of you, perhaps, but some will. That, you know, that people will move to beginning to question, actually, does God really exist? And there are other reasons why people begin to deconvert, no doubt. But this is one of them. You know, what was once held firm, you know, tragedy after tragedy, we begin to disbelieve. Now, for most of us, we're threatened more by the idea, not of disbelieving in the existence of God, but doubting in the goodness of God. Does God really love me? Does he really care for me? Why would he allow all these things to come into my life? Some of us will, will doubt. Others of us will move to just grumble and complain. Maybe murmur. Just grow bitter. You know, it's like a cancer that will eat you from the inside. How, how will we handle this? I want to allow me to encourage you to lament to do what David's doing, to pour out your hearts to him, to take whatever the tragedy and the trouble, you bring that to him. You see in verse 8, pour out your hearts before him. That, that Hebrew word to pour out your hearts means to just dump it all out. If you've got a bad boss, tell God that. If you've got bad working conditions, tell God that. If you have an unsatisfying marriage and you don't see any hope, tell him that. If you have some 
terminal illness or you have the threat of one or you have this issue and struggle with tell God that lament before God rather than just complaining and listen to yourself over tell God what your trouble is that's what a lament is for to pour out your hearts before him and then let the lament let the lament increase a longing that you have for things to be made right. You know, every one of us in here wants to be happy. We want things to be in order. We do. We want it. You know, Augustine in the late third century said that every man, every woman, whatever their condition, wants to be happy. We do. You know, outside of hope in God, there is no happiness. Naturalism has no has no reason for longing for happiness. I read in a, a post about a, a senior lecturer at an institute in London in psychiatry, naturalist. Naturalism doesn't give you any hope. Here's what he says about happiness. Humans are not designed to be happy or even content. Instead, we're designed primarily to survive and reproduce like every other creature in the natural world. A state of contentment is discouraged by nature because it would, it would lower our guard against possible threats to our survival. In fact, these strategies merely try to find a remedy for our innate inability to enjoy life consistently. So we should take comfort in the knowledge that unhappiness is not really our fault. It's the fault of our natural design. It's in our blueprint. Well, he's not coming to my birthday party. I'll tell you that. Gracious, that's like Eeyore on steroids. But that's the answer of the world right there. That, that's, that's the answer. There should be no longing in you, and yet everyone in this room, you have a longing. You want it. Why? I think God's put it there. Let lament fuel that longing. You know, when things aren't as they should be, let it, let it fuel this desire. But I want it to be that way. I want it to be that way. That's why we need Easter. That's why we've been doing the Psalms of lament and confidence leading up to Easter. Easter is God's decisive entrance into our world with a son. As Ray prayed, who was born in the flesh, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, was raised to new life to reveal to us a new order is coming. We saw the first fruits of it when Christ Jesus was raised from the dead. And it will come in fullness one day. And let lament create hunger pains in you for that day. Lament can be redemptive if we bring it to God. But the day hasn't come. And so we see David lamenting. But then look what David does next. Because David next moves to exercising faith. He shows us how to move in faith in the midst of struggle and adversity. Look with me at 5 to 7. He says, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock. My refuge is God. 
It's incredible here. You think, well, David's just repeating himself from verses 1 and 2. And he is not really, right? There is similarity. There is the parallelism there. But there are changes that he's made. In other words, in verses 1 and 2, he says, my soul waits in silence. That's indicative. He's, he's speaking about his position, that his soul waits in silence. But here, you see in 5, it's an imperative. It's different. He's speaking to his soul. He says, oh, my soul, wait in silence. He's telling his soul. He's urging his soul. He's preaching to himself. In other words, he's not letting the, the tragedy that comes into his life create emotions which then cloud his thinking. No, he's changing his thinking. He's reminding God's sovereignty. He's my fortress. He's my mighty rock. He's my strong tower. And the thoughts are changing the emotions. So he's actively, and, and what he's doing is, it's like a soliloquy. You know, soliloquy is used in drama oftentimes when the, when the author wants to express what he's thinking to his audience, like in Hamlet. You know, to be or not to be, that's the question. He goes off and you kind of hear the musings in his mind. What David's doing is he's letting us know what's in his mind. And what he's doing is he's taking his soul to task. And he's saying, listen, soul, the truth of the matter is, no matter what storm is raging around us, God is our fortress. He is our strong tower. He's our, he's our mighty rock. He's the one upon which we're going to stand. You see the same thing in Psalm 42. He says, why so downcast, O my soul? He says, put your hope in God. He takes his soul out and says, why are you downcast? Put your hope in God. Put your trust in God. That's what he's doing. And so he says to, he says to his soul, oh my soul, you wait in silence. Now, waiting is not passive. It's not like just kind of waiting for the boss or waiting for your birthday. It's an active thing. And waiting in silence isn't simply being nonverbal because he's speaking. Waiting in silence means you wait in a quietude. You wait with confidence. You wait. You don't need to speak because you know the sovereignty of God. You know his goodness. You know his investment. He is a strong tower. He is a mighty fortress. He is a rock upon which we stand. He is sovereign and he is good and we can rest. Our souls can be at rest. And you see what happens. You see that he's changed. Because you see back in verse 2, he says, I will not be greatly shaken. Implication, I can kind of be shaken, but I won't be greatly shaken. But you see in verses 5 and 6, he says, I will not be shaken. I won't be shaken. His faith, David, if you will, is like retrusting God again. He's retrusting God. How do we do this? How can you do this? When you hit the tragedy, how are you going to do what he just did? Well, let me give you two words. Speaking and trusting. Speaking. We need to speak to ourselves. We do. You need to talk to yourself about the truths of God. Now, again, there is a place for lament. You can tell them all your sky is falling scenarios if you want. Pour out your laments. Don't stop there. But move to speak to yourself. I don't mean in some psycho babble and feedback loop where I'm great, I'm great, I'm great, and I'm starting to think I'm great. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about taking the truth that we know of God and bringing that to our soul so that our soul can now wait in silence. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book called Spiritual Depressions. Perhaps some of you have read it in the very beginning. He speaks to this issue. And here's what he says. He says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? 
Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You, you must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way, then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. That's how we talk to our souls. Reminding them this is who God is. This is what he's done. This is what he's pledged. These are his promises to us. So, so we speak to ourselves and, and then we trust. We trust in the truth. You, you know, when I, each week when I preach, I always have usually a word in there calling people to justifying faith. By that I mean, uh, we have a part where I explain the cross of Christ and how one actually is reconciled to God through the repentance and forgiveness of sins, putting our hope in Christ. So I always call for some measure of justifying faith. But the majority, I'm speaking about sanctifying faith. I'm calling you to believe what you're hearing. Not to believe in me, but to believe in the word as it's hopefully explained clearly. Like that you would believe God is a refuge. That you would believe tomorrow if you get horrible news. You're going to turn and you're going to say, you are my rock. You are my fortress. You are my king. My soul will wait in silence. I'm asking you to believe these things. And you know, it's interesting in the psalm is six times there's a little Hebrew word that begins half of the sentences that means only or alone or truly. And he's saying believe in God only. Trust in God alone. God holds himself up as the singular object of your trust. And folks, many of us struggle here. Uh, we want to trust in God, but we want to trust in a bunch of other stuff as well. Now, I'm not talking about ignoring means of grace. I'm not saying if you're sick, you don't go to the doctor. There's a difference here in using the means of grace and trusting in them. He's saying trust in God alone. The divided heart, if you want to be a Christian and a pragmatist, or the, a, a Christian and a utilitarian, I'm going to trust in God, but I've got to do these other things too. You know, God helps those who help themselves. We, we kind of just feel intuitively. That's not. That's condemned here. We trust in, a, a divided heart is a weak heart. You see this in life all the time. So, you know, being raised, of course, on the, on the water... We'd often take our relatives from out of town on the, on the boat, and uh, whether motor or sailboat. And it was always, you know, being on a boat is fine. The danger in, in any sort of water activity is not the boat or in the boat. It's actually getting people onto the boat or getting them off the boat. That's where the danger is. Because when the boat comes up, the water's moving and the boat's moving and the pier's not moving. And so to get them from the boat to the pier or the other way was always hazardous. Because at one point, they have to, they can't, nobody hops onto the pier like a rabbit. They have one foot on the boat, they put one foot on the pier. And if you get indecisive at that point, it's never good. It's never good. If you want to hear a story, I'll tell you about my uncle later. It was a disaster. But, but if you wait too long, if you try to play both things, 
you're going to drop in the drink. You've got to make a decision. I've got to go with one, or I've got to go with the other, but I can't do both. And what he's saying is you trust God alone. You come to God alone. Again, it doesn't mean we don't use means. But I'll tell you, you don't look at those means like you look at, at God. So what David's saying here is he's giving us his personal testimony. He's saying, listen, yeah, I, I lamented. I, I, was sw- I was being chased, pursued, surrounded by the enemy. But my soul waited in silence because I put my hope in God. But then you see him turn to us like a good pastor now encouraging his congregation. He turns to us. Look with me at 8 through 10. He says, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set set not your heart upon them. Now, so David now turns to us, and really the best instructors in suffering, you don't really learn these things simply in a classroom setting. You learn them by going through them, and he's gone through them, and now he's encouraging us to walk through them as he has. So he gives us a warning here. Well, he gives us a call to put our trust in God, but he also warns us about what not to trust. Let me start with that. He's cautioning us to not look to people for any sort of hope, security, identity. Don't look to people. They aren't worthy of it. He speaks about those of low estate. Those are the normal Joes and Janes of the world. He says they're not even a breath. The word means they're meaningless. He's not talking about human value here. He's talking about ability to be worthy of someone's trust. Yeah, you trust in somebody. You can't trust in those of low estate. You can't hook your wagon to them as if they're going to steer you through life, as if they're going to provide meaning or hope or security or significance to you. This is one of the downfalls early in marriage is there's too much hope placed upon a spouse that needs to be placed upon God. But not just those of low estate, those of high estate, those of rank and significance and privilege. We look to them. He says, no, they're a delusion. Now, why does he change his his adjectives? Why does he say they're a delusion? Well, because they seem to offer more. I mean, they're smarter. Maybe they're richer. Maybe they're mightier. Maybe they're better positioned. And, and, And so the temptation is to put your hope in them. He says, they're a delusion. Hebrew word means they're a lie. In other words, they're making the promises they can't keep. He says, don't trust in them. In fact, he says, those of low estate and those of high estate, you can put them all on a scale. That's called a mirrorism. It's a a literary device in Hebrew. You talk about the lowest, you talk about the highest, but you include everybody in between. And you dump them all on one side of a scale. And then you put God on the other, they quickly go up. They fly up. They're lighter than a breath. You take 20,000 breaths a day, and they're lighter than a breath. In comparison to put, what David's saying is, don't put your hope in people. I mean, if, you, if you've put your hope in governmental change, or if your hopes were just dashed because your candidate didn't win, or if your hopes were increased because your candidate, don't put your hope in people. Uh, don't put your, if you're just looking for medical technologies to keep life as it is, don't put your hope in scientists and, and what's going to come out of a laboratory. Say, don't put your hope in people. We have this, you know, put on Spotify and it said, stop Asian hate. 
an administration, a new philosophy, it's not going to stop hate. The issues are, are within us. We need something more than that. And what he's saying, we've got to hope in God. If we have cultural issues, we appeal to God for this. He's the only one that can bring this kind of change. You know, so Carol and I like to walk. Well, she doesn't actually like to walk. I like to walk, and I guess she likes to walk with me. Uh, but, you know, the past month, of course, the flowers and trees are starting to bloom. And I think it's a red bud in our community. I don't know. It's kind of a magenta. It's a small little flower. It's really pretty. Every time I bring up flowers, some two or three guys come up and bust on me. But be that as it may, it's a beautiful tree. But here's the deal. It only blooms for about two weeks. And it is beautiful. It's brilliant. And then even after a few cold nights, it loses its luster. That's what we're like. We're the same way. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. You don't put your hope in humans, in administrations, in technologies, in anything that has come forth from our hands. We may use them and we may enjoy them, but we don't trust in them. Psalm 39, the psalmist reminds us, Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. That's how we understand ourselves. So that we throw our hope in God and God alone. But he says, don't just trust in man. Don't trust in wealth. Notice he says, whether wealth be gained by ungodly means like extortion or robbery, or whether wealth be gained by godly means like work and industry. Put no hope in them. In fact, he says, set not your heart on them. That's probably the simplest definition of idolatry, is when you set your heart, when you're, when you're trusting. Now, how do you know when you set your heart on things? Well, usually when, you're, when your spirit rises and falls quickly based upon what you're hoping to get or you're not hoping to get, and, and, and you begin to shoot up with excitement over you get what you want or you crash in despair when you don't, you probably hooked your heart up to that. And you say, don't set your heart on riches. I mean, riches are just dangerous. They're dangerous. In fact, Paul warns Timothy, he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes, or you could say set your heart on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. If you set your heart, if you find your security, if you find an identity in what you have or the security that you have, you are walking in perilous ways. You know, so most scholars or many scholars think that this psalm formed the basis of Jesus' teaching in Luke 12 when he gave the parable of the rich man. Remember the rich man? He, he built barns because his crops were coming in and then more crops came in so he tore down his barns and he built bigger barns and all of that he was just amassing this wealth. Here was the bad turn he made. He says when he looked at all that he had it says I will sit back and take my life easy. I will eat and drink and be merry. And then Christ renders a judgment. He says you fool. This very night, your life is required of you. Riches can't stop death. They're not so certain and solid. In fact, I use that text. I preached at a baccalaureate service when Rachel, that is not the graduation service, the night before, it's a little more intimate. You just have the graduating seniors and the families. And I preached that text to these soon-to-be college freshmen who would then go on to begin making careers. I said, don't forget this. Because there's no hope 
in riches. There's no hope in others. It's hope in God alone. And that's what we find him doing here. David's saying, don't trust. No, what have you set your heart on? What are you in most fear? And where do you see the remedy coming from? Where do you see help coming from? Where is your heart set right now? For the different pressures that I was asking you about in the beginning, what is your hope on? Is it on doctors? Again, I want to keep caveating. We use means, but we don't trust in them. We don't hook our souls to them. David does one other thing here. He wants to explain who God is to us. He wants us to set. He wants us to trust in God. But he wants to make sure that we have a right understanding of God. You can throw an anchor over the bow of a boat. And if it doesn't grab a hold of the seabed, the anchor is just going to swing in the currents. It, it has to hold something. And so that's why in 11 and 12, he begins to explain who God is. Look with me at 11 and 12. He says, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. That's an interesting way of saying, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. What does this mean? Well, I, I don't know exactly. It could mean that uh, God speaks once, he speaks twice as a point of emphasis. He, it could mean that God's not saying one thing, but he's saying two things. And that would apply in our context because he does tell us two things about God. Think about what he tells us. So he says, look in verse 8, he says, trust in him at all times. Who is him? Well, he is God. And who is God? Well, to God belongs all power. Power to give life, power to sustain life, power to take life, a power to move life, a power to move history towards ends that he has created. This is the foundation of our trust. If we don't believe in the providential power of God, we have not a prayer. If we are living in a society that is just kind of rocking down the river without any direction, without any control, we have no hope. But he's saying, no, all power belongs to God. That's why we have hope. God can even use the, as Levy said in his letter, God uses even the dark providences of our lives, like verses three and four, to achieve ends for which we will glorify him one day. And this is what we hope. Like, I know that the tragedies I've walked through have been redemptively powerful in my life and will be part of the package of praise that I give to him when I see him. So, so he, all power, all power, even the worst event in your life, he can twist it into a beautiful shape to provide for you both in this life and for you to glorify him and enjoy him later. Every problem, every problem you face. And that takes power. It doesn't take power to ruin something. But it, it takes power to take something ruined and write it into something perfect. Only God can do that. But not only does all power belong to him, but so does all steadfast love. Steadfast love, that's a unique Hebrew word. It's really one of the earliest, um, when God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, it's hesed. It means like a steadfast loyalty, a covenantal loyalty, a mercy that God has. This mercy that goes on for generations. It's a unique word describing the character of God. It means that he's kind and forgiving. We often see God and we believe in a caricature of God. Cold, distant, off-putting, not accessible. 
but he's kind, he's merciful. And, and when David was saying trust in him, the him he wants you to trust is one all power and all mercy. We need both, don't we? I, I, I mean, if, if we don't have both, you can have all power. He has the capacity to save, but if he's not all merciful, then maybe he's not inclined to save. Or if he's all merciful and he's inclined to save, if he's not all powerful, maybe he can't save. But in God, we have both. He's all-powerful and all-merciful. And the unique thing is that's not just in his character, in his, in his holiness, but we see it displayed in the gospel. This is the incredible linkage between God of the Old Testament being the same God of the New Testament. Because we see the same all-power and all-mercy at the cross of Christ. They kiss each other at the cross. The power of God to crush sin and the mercy of God to forgive sin. All centered on the Son who bears our sins. This is the nature of the gospel. This is the nature of God. God wants to save. God does save. And he saves through faith. Faith in God who has given a Son, who has borne upon himself our sins, that through faith in him we can be reconciled to God. That burden of sin that you may have is lifted off you by faith and put on the Son. And then God reconciles himself to you through his work alone. That's the entrance of the faith. But that's something we still revel in for all of us, even as believers for years. Every morning we preach the gospel to ourselves. When you start talking to yourself about the days, no, then you preach the gospel to yourself. So, so he's calling us here to not trust in man or riches, but to trust in God alone. So beware of the danger of misplaced trust, misplaced hope. What are you hoping in? Now, I know this is difficult to try to discern. Am I trusting or am I using this means of grace? Like I said, if, you go to the, if you're sick, should I go to the doctor? Yeah, go to the doctor. But when you go to the doctor, ask God to give the doctor wisdom. Thank God for the gifts that the doctor has. Tell, ask God to help the doctor who's fallible like you and who's brief in life like you, that he might be used of God for the purposes of helping you or your child. That you're trusting in God, not the doctor. You're asking the doctor to use the gifts that God may have given them, but you're asking God to do. That's how we utilize means and not trust in those means because we know that they're from God and unless God's involved, they won't operate well. They won't operate well at all. So beware of what you're putting your hope in. Should we pray for presidents and administrations? Yes, absolutely, but we don't trust in them. We're asking God every night, Carol, I go to bed. We pray for our nation. We pray for the president. We pray that they would be humbled. They'd recognize that their days are short and they're going to stand before God. We pray for humility. We don't look to them for hope. God may use them, but we're talking to God about them. That's how we can avoid trusting in means and still using them. And, and, then, and then I would remind you that we need to do this for each other. What I'm doing for you, you need to do for one another. David stands up. He says, listen, I've been through some trial. Let me tell you about God. We need to do that for one another. That's why we need to be gathering back and why we sent the letter. You know, I'm thankful for the virtual ability we have, the live stream and that sort of deal. And, and those people who are, but we've got to start making our way back. We need to be together to go through these issues. Uh, you know, people have testified to me that they've longed to come back. That they've missed other people. People maybe that they wouldn't be naturally inclined to. But we need one another. David is doing this 
you know, Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. We need to be doing that. And, I, and, and last, I, I want you to see this is a pattern. This is not a one and done. You don't do this once and then, okay, good. I've gone through that. I'm ready to go. No, this, isn't, this is something we do over and over. You have faith. You enter trials. Uh, you, you tell your soul to wait in silence. And you find that peace. You live. You enter trials. You tell your soul, we do this over and over. This is a pattern that God is baking into our lives. Tragedies don't just come once. They come, they're sprinkled throughout life. Remember, they're going to be our tutors so that we can lament and long for God. This is a beautiful prayer. Let's just take, take a minute and ask God to give us grace, maybe reveal where we're trusting. Give us grace to believe. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.